Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN with host General Grange. Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 25th program and our 10th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. We've seen a lot happen in the last week. The war is changing all the time. It's not possible to predict the outcome, but tonight we've got great guests who will talk about the war and give you some ideas as to where we think things are and where they're heading. I'm joined tonight by Ambassador Lawrence Butler and Lieutenant Colonel Retired Dave Johnson. They've been with us before. You know them from past programs. And I'm Ranger Doug. I don't need an introduction because I'm just the dealer in this card game. We'll be using the same format as before, general questions that allow them to use their experience and expertise to give an idea of what we might see based on where is the war today? What are the war aims of the participants? What are the activities that are noticeable in affecting the world as a whole, including the US, NATO, the European Union, including the PRC as well, the People's Republic of China. Uh, what do we think about any peace efforts or ceasefires, which are different? And then we're uh, looking at the next weeks and what we may see. And finally, we're going to do something different. We're going to conduct uh, what I call a lightning round, similar to Jeopardy, where we've got some questions from the audience and answers from the participants. So without further ado, Ambassador Butler, would you please uh, give a short background sketch? Over to you, sir. Ranger Doug, Ambassador Larry Butler, veteran of 40 years of the State Department, Started my career along the Iron Curtain in Finland and then Bulgaria when it was a communist country. Became a Balkan specialist, uh, worked at the White House on Irish peace, then went back to work on Afghanistan, Iraq, and all of that stuff before I retired. And kind of since then, I've been working to help the military stay linked up with the State Department. I'm Dave Johnson. I'm the executive director of the Center for Advanced Defense Studies, also known as C4ADS, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank dedicated to using data-driven uh, uh, approaches to address complex security challenges. I'm a graduate of the Military Academy at West Point, uh, Army strategist, and uh, served a career as uh, an infantry and special forces officer. That's where I know uh, Ranger Doug. Moving into our questions for tonight, I'd like to ask Ambassador Butler, where do you think we are in the war now? We're kind of at one of those possible inflection points, Ranger Doug. We are coming up on Russia's versions of Victory in Europe Day, which is May 9th, where the current head of Russia, Vladimir Putin, needs desperately to be able to pronounce a massive victory over the dreaded Ukrainians and the West. It's going to be interesting to see, he's pulled all his forces back from the attack on Kiev. He's trying to, trying to reposition them into the east into the Donbass, Luhansk area of eastern uh, Ukraine. Right now, it, he's managed to seize a couple of villages and some towns, so there's been some incremental gains on the ground. But right now, other than reducing Mariupol to basically wasteland and then surrounding the steel factory, where apparently the Ukrainian forces and plus civilians are still holding out, it's kind of a really good question of what is it that he can plausibly roll out onto Red Square in terms of a victory parade. Thanks, Ambassador. Dave, how about you? Well, I think that uh, currently uh, we're still in the middle of the information campaign. Uh, we certainly get a particular angle on what's going on over there. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that uh, both sides are in the process of, of burning through massive amounts of personnel and, and equipment, uh, wearing themselves out, if you will. Uh, I think that the Ukrainian effort uh, seems to be generating more and more uh, momentum around international support and uh, arms flows. Uh, at the same time, they still have a couple of big challenges ahead of them, uh, depending upon their war aims and, and what they're willing to accept uh, in, in some kind of solution. So uh, I think that we're in that space where we've just about finished up with the strategic pause and we've begun a phase where we're uh, starting the ground operations in the east and in the south. 
Very good. Thank you. Dave, let me ask you this then. Based on that, give us some thoughts on what you think the war aims of Ukraine and Russia are at this point. So I think we have to start with understanding the geopolitics behind all of this. Uh, I think that any Russian leader is concerned with closing down the Western invasion corridor from the Carpathian Mountains all the way back to Russia and warm water ports. Uh, and those are existential issues and have been strategic issues for uh, Russia from you know, the 900s uh, or more likely the 1200s. Uh, and so there's been this ongoing battle for Ukrainian territory since uh, Yuri Dolgoruki, who uh, founded Moscow and tried to reach back and grab control of Kiev. Uh, and so I, I think that the war aims of Russia uh, on broad spectrum are to maintain some sort of influence over the countries in that region, to influence them in some way. Uh, and whether or not that's seizing territory or putting in puppet, puppet governments, uh, and in this, this particular case in the fight in Ukraine, which is an operational element, a campaign within the larger picture, I think, of his strategy, of the Russian strategy, is uh, that they will hold on to uh, separatist regions uh, and that they will hopefully... Uh, gain enough territory to make any government in uh, Kiev and even the governments, other governments within the region, uh, client states. And that's, that's the goal, scare, scare them into being client states. I don't think uh, that his goal is to create total victory because uh, total war, you know, the mechanism behind that, defeat the enemy's army and seize his capital, they'll surrender. Well, what makes them surrender is genocide. They'll, they're helpless and you'll kill them all. And I don't think he's going there. I mean, I, at least I hope not. Uh, I, certainly there's possibility that if there's enough, that these war aims could change. And I believe they have from the beginning of, of how much he needs to do to influence the environment. Uh, he'll, he'll, I think he'll keep doing that. For President Zelensky, it's much, much simpler in a lot of ways. He doesn't want to lose. Uh, you know, at the very least, he has to retain all of the territory um, that he had before Russia invaded. Uh, and he's hoping, certainly, to gain back Do Do the Donbass region uh, and, uh, and, you know, gaining some control over Crimea would, of course, be, be gravy. But Donbass is, is, you know, a goal since 2008. Uh, so I think that, um, or 2014. So I think that we're, um, you know, each side has goals that may or may not be met. And in the end, talk a little bit later on about what the solution may be. Thanks, Dave. Okay, well then, Ambassador, over to you for that same question. Once again, violent agreement with what Dave just said about the warm water ports, the Russian perception of the threat that comes from the West, which is, you know, the routes in from the Carpathians. I've always postulated that Putin's grand strategy was to control as much of the Black Sea as he could which means all the way down to the Danube, just to present a problem to NATO. You, can, you have to ask yourself the question, from the West, we don't perceive NATO as a threat to Moscow. If you're sitting in Moscow, NATO is a threat to the system that Putin has put in place. It's, uh, it's an autocratic authoritarian regime where pluralism is a bad thing. The big problem that Putin has right now, his international reputation image has been badly bloodied by his failure to capture Kiev. He hasn't made a lot of progress on the ground in the east. I mean, it's incremental, but it's not big. Big prize would be if seize Odessa and then push all the way down to the border of Romania. That would be awesome. In the meantime, you know, he's kind of like, he snapped the trap too early. He thought it was going to be Georgia 2008, where logistics worked in his favor and overwhelming ratios of mass enabled him to be successful there. That's not the case here. Flip side for Zelensky, and this is where I have a slight difference with Dave, is you know, for Zelensky, you know, a victory is that the Russians don't get much more than they have and that another 20,000 to 30,000 Russians die as they try to grind their way east. So right now, this is a war of attrition. We're almost looking, I mean, this is kind of odd. We're almost looking like a World War One situation where if you've ever been to Flanders Field, the high point on the land was two meters higher than everything else. Well, that's a good description of eastern Ukraine. It's flat. It's Kansas. It's wheat fields. There's not a lot of terrain features you can use to, to mask your attack. So this is going to be interesting to see 
this is my prediction. The Russians are going to are going to shift over to a strategy of isolating and strangling Ukrainian population centers as they attempt to move east. And the question is, can NATO, can the West sustain those populations with food, medicines, the will to resist? This is a center of gravity in any conflict. And for right now, Zelensky, is, he's a winner. The question is, can he sustain this? And that's for me right now. Good, thanks. I would just add that I think uh, Zelensky has been rather uh, pumped up by recent uh, accolades, and uh, we really don't know where he's going to go. I think that in the situation that they're in right now, it's very possible that uh, he may, given what he's been able to do so far, his forces may be able to blunt anything that the Russians attempt to do. But the problem you have in a, in a war like this is the longer you fight, the longer you train your enemy. And if your enemy has more staying power, logistics, internal lines of communication, and so forth than you do, then you have a problem. Also, if, if this thing somehow can be made by Putin and his acolytes to bring the Russian people to a level of fury that lets them get to the business, then that'll be one thing. On the other hand, if they become disaffected, I, I don't know what Putin does. He's already using proxy forces in a war he started. He's got people from Chechnya and others uh, hooting around in the battle area now. They're evidently acting like the commissars of old, shooting Russians that won't fight. That can't last, in my mind, very long because word has to get back that even though the social media may be kept under tight control, that things like that are happening in, in the battle area. But we'll have to see. Well, let's move on to the next question. What are any noticeable effects on the world at large? And I've listed some things there. You can talk in any order you wish, the EU, NATO, the US, China, and so forth. That would be for you, Dave. Okay. Well, I think that if we look at the global systems, diplomatic, informational, military, economic, and political, as we spoke about in a previous session, um, there, are, there are impacts all the way across those things. Um, I've Somebody in a previous session was an economist and really hammered hard on the impacts of uh, food shortages uh, and other resource shortages on global economies, especially in the developing world. Um, we've had people talk, I believe, a little bit about the diplomatic impacts. Uh, we've seen, you know, the questions of uh, Sweden and Finland, which are, are members of the EU. They're not neutral, but members of the EU uh, joining NATO, potentially joining NATO, which makes the, the, the picture even worse uh, as NATO flanks um, Russia, so to speak. Uh, and we also have seen uh, in terms of informational, the informational battles that are going on out there, uh, a lot of both, you know, positive and negative messages from both sides. Uh, and, and nobody is, uh, is pure as the driven snow. Uh, you know, uh, Ukraine itself, before this war happened, faced massive challenges of corruption and, and uh, lots and lots of political upheaval. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had gone through quite a bit lately. Uh, so, you know, this is more a... Um, a, uh, uh, I, I think uh, if we look at the impacts militarily, we've seen moving of Wagner assets that uh, were part of Russia's support to some other developing countries uh, back into the fight. Uh, in the U.S., we're, we're, we're putting money on ammo, but somebody's got to make the ammo. Uh, and we've got to keep our own forces stocked and supplied with ammo. So what we give to the um, Ukrainians, what's being burned up there has got to be replaced somewhere. If we think about what happened in Libya, uh, when the when NATO didn't have enough cruise missiles and we came in and helped out, uh, we ended up in one night burning up the equivalent of the entire education budget of Washington, D.C. In, in cruise missiles. Uh, and it's a matter of running out because these things have to be made and they're complex, they're, they're complicated to make and they have, uh, part, they're part of the defense industrial, uh, defense industrial base. Um, and I think that we're going to see also in the case of, of China, we're going to see an emboldened China um, looking on at this sort of thing, because, you know, obviously uh, it's going to find its place moving up in the in in world uh, opinion or world, um, I guess, influence as Russia, Russian influence declines. Uh, so I think we can expect those kinds of upheavals in, in the overall diplomatic scheme of things. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. And now we'll break for a commercial. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Bringing you shows like Wounded But Not Broken, Roll Call, and Veterans Radio Hour.
on VBN. We'll be right back. Near Washington, a giant Soviet bomber stands poised for flight. Her passenger, Soviet Commissar Molotov. He came for a week of conferences with President Roosevelt. Secretary of State Hull and Ambassador Litvinov are on hand to see him leave. In London, he signed a new 20-year Anglo-Russian alliance. Here, he reached understandings on opening a second European front. The war's best-kept secret. Not until Mr. Molotov was safely back in Moscow was his visit revealed. Secretary Hull and Mr. Litvinov signed the protocol, promising ever-increasing supplies to Russia. A new working agreement between two of the greatest nations in the world. Attention, America and GTS Carrier needs you. There's a national shortage of truck drivers, and therefore freight is not being moved fast enough to meet the needs of our economy as well as our supply needs. In Burr Ridge, Illinois, on Friday, May 20th, between 1 and 6 p.m. Central, GTS Carrier is having a job fair. We're looking to hire truck drivers, mechanics, and dispatchers. GTS Carrier hires the best of the best. When you see our logo, you can rest assured the driver is a part of a team of elite drivers who is working to keep and maintain our country and economy. Come to our job fair and find out more about us. Even if you're a spectator, come and visit us. Visit our website at gtscarrier.com or drivefordrivers.com. Once again, gtscarrier.com or drivefordrivers.com. America and GTS needs you. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nife.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nife.org, and click on VDAC. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN. Generals gathered in their masses In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. This is our 25th program, our 10th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. And we're on the question, what has been the effect so far on the world at large, including such entities as the EU, NATO, the US, China, and so forth? Well, Ambassador, what do you think? All right. Let me start, kind of work my way up from People's Republic of China. They have a problem that they're taking notes on. There's a, a view out there, you know, Sun Tzu said, you know, never stay engaged with your enemy long enough for him to learn you. One of our last episodes, we talked about how the Chinese are taking notes, as are the Ukrainians, as are everybody else. Russia has, this is an abysmal failure of what used to be, you know, 100 foot tall, undefeated, you know, you, it's run the table at every conflict it's ever been, turns out not to be the case. So China's paying attention to one, Okay, Russia is diminished in public opinion in terms of its ability to project power, except in West Africa, where apparently the Wagner Group is like earning kudos from everybody because they're killing people uh, without any consequences, which is kind of apparently making people uh, in places like Burkina Faso and some other places happy based on the press reporting that I'm looking at. But uh, they just had to come out a, a couple of days ago and say, um, look, if we were to invade Taiwan, it wouldn't be an invasion because Taiwan is not is part of China. Therefore, it's not like Ukraine. It's not an invasion. So they have a public narrative problem. But they've also recognized that this might not be as easy as we thought it might be. They might actually resist and this could get really ugly. And then the second piece is let's go to the economic second effects. This is where we're now going to talk about NATO, EU, and the United States. There's a piece out by 
CSIS today being April 28th, uh, that says that the economy of Russia is going to drop like 15, 20%. The economy of, of Ukraine is going to drop like 45%. But the knock-on effect for international price of wheat, we know the price of oil, hydrocarbons has gone through the roof, you know, and the Russians, oddly enough, are, are benefiting from it because there's still people buying their stuff that may shrink. So there's going to be effects on the world economy. The Chinese are paying attention to if the international economy tanks, the Chinese economy goes with it. So this is kind of like take notes before you invade Taiwan, which is where we get most of our microchips from, uh, semiconductor chips, and then the shipping that goes to the South China Sea. This might not be work well to the overall welfare of the People's Republic of China. But moving over to NATO and the European Union, the Swedes just came out and the prime minister said that they do not intend to put NATO membership out to a public referendum. This is going to be a parliamentary vote, which will be binding for the country. That is earth shaking that a country, and this is like we used to say that referenda in Europe always ended up answering the wrong question. The Swedes understand that. The average Swede might say, oh, we don't want to be part of NATO. The political body of Sweden has said what's going on in Ukraine and on our eastern approaches is so important. We can't afford to allow the average Swede to have a vote on this one. Their elected representatives are going to do this. I think the same thing is going to be true for Finland. So this is interesting. Russians cutting off natural gas to Poland and to Bulgaria. If they don't pay in rubles, which they can't under EU rules, we're going to cut you off. It's forcing their adversaries. And the funny thing part about it is Bulgaria and Poland are not adversaries. They're just on their front lines. They don't hate Russia. They have no aspirations of Russia. They're being, they are feel threatened by Russia. And now they're, they're circling the wagons and they're pulling tighter and tighter together. So every action that Russia takes right now is causing more and more solidarity. And I think uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin heard that loud and clear in his ad hoc meeting of what they're now calling a contact group at Ramstein Air Force Base, I think on Sunday afternoon when he came back from Kiev. That's great, Ambassador. Thanks. And I think both very uh, rich comments, both of you. There's a lot going on, a lot that we have to be concerned about in regards to China. The thing that strikes me odd about what's happening right now is that we have this strange situation with various producers of grain and such, and they are at this point not only at a standstill, but they can't plant there's just a lot going on right now that means that we don't know truly what's going to happen when that wheat doesn't hit the market. And I believe we're going to see famine in certain areas of the world and a lot more turmoil so that this rather localized fight may generalize to something larger in the world with a great deal more conflict and suffering as a result. Uh, we can talk about that more at the end because we'll have a lightning session at the end to go over some ideas that we may want to revisit. Let's move on then to the next point, and that will be to Dave. And that is what might be the status of any ceasefire or peace activities. Negotiations are going to be ongoing throughout this fighting period. The diplomats don't fall silent while the guns are firing. There's a lot of discussion. But if we look at how these things tend to play out um, in the era of age of limited warfare, Korea was an armistice, uh, stalemate, because both sides kind of burnt themselves out. Um, if you're looking at uh, the armistice in World War I, because you know, Ambassador Butler brought that one up, Larry brought that one up. Uh, these are things that are signed because of the military situation becomes relatively stalemated. I think we can see in the East where over the past couple of years, we've got trench line warfare really going on. Um, and uh, we can see that uh, the defense, just like in Gettysburg, we had that discussion in a previous session, the defense seems to have a big advantage in this environment, especially when you're talking about massed firepower uh, and artillery. Uh, so you, may, you might end up with another military stalemate with people burning themselves out, and then you're going to have an armistice of some kind, a truce. That means it's not peace, it's just something signed by the military saying, hey, we're going to take a break, so to speak. And how that piece comes about and where, at what point on the ground that piece comes about, you know, what parallel, so to speak, if you want to use the Korea metaphor, is really what's, in, what's at play. Because in an environment where, as Clausewitz put it, the losing side in, in the fight always sees reparations in future fights, uh, and Russia has an enduring, whether, whether Putin's in charge or not, they have an enduring security imperative uh, about the Western invasion corridor, 
Um, they're not going to stop. This isn't the only war going to happen over Ukraine. This is going to keep happening. And so likely we'll have an armistice over time. And if we can maintain a balance of, of terror, then we'll end up with peace. Uh, if not, then we'll continue to have these periods where people rearm and then go back at it. I mean, that's kind of how I see where we're, where we're headed. So I think we're going to wait. I, I think the, the best opportunity for a, a, a agreement of some kind, a truce, uh, will probably occur after uh, the, the fighting this spring and summer. Uh, and people have burned themselves out and found a, a, a balance point. And I don't think you're going to get any kind of peace treaty signed by and ratified by parliaments. I think it's going to be a truce. And I think it's going to be because they burnt themselves out. Thanks, Dave. Ambassador, over to you. I'd like to believe that uh, what Dave just said is, you know, that at some point Moscow magnanimously agrees to what they describe. And this is a this is, you know, trying to dominate the narrative, a truce um, begged for by Kiev. Uh, and I'm not sure that Zelensky at this point is, you know, absent, you know, absent. He runs out of money, runs out of bullets, runs out of people is prepared to lay weapons down as we as we did uh, in Korea in 1953 and say, OK, kind of enough is enough. Uh, you know, for for Putin and I have to, I'm going to go out there and say right now, um, you know, I, I wonder if there's something going on with the head of Russia that he's on a timetable that we're not aware of. There's a clock. There's a shot clock. If using a basketball metaphor, counting down that we can't see, and he's got to you know he's got to put as many points on the on the board before the clock runs you know clock hits zero and the and the and the buzzer goes off. I just don't know, but I think for Zelensky, uh, short of uh, and this is what Dave said, you know, if he gets exhausted, if he runs out of resources, if the Russians decide that fifty thousand dead Russians. Uh, in, in an economy and a, a demography where, where they have a declining birth rate uh, is is more than than the traffic can bear. Uh, it's going to be an interesting question. So I almost anticipate that we may see something like we saw in Afghanistan, where we had the you know, when winter hit, it, you know, the, the fighting season was over. When spring came, the fighting season started again. We don't see a pickup. But right now, I think the Russians are all in it to win it. Uh, we saw missile attacks on a bridge over the Dniester Estuary, which connects Odessa's railway railway system to their Danube River ports. And for people who are not familiar with the geography of Ukraine, yes, Ukraine has ports on the Danube River, which is currently the only way they have to get wheat exports out. So uh, they're going to be continued effect. So the question is, will the world community... Uh, start putting pressure on both Kiev and on Moscow to stop the fighting. You know, settle down, go into the trenches, get an arm, you know, get a 1953 Korean-style armistice, you know, and kind of you know sort things out, uh, which is pretty much what Russia has already done once. I mean, they tried to grab as much of Donbass as they could. They didn't get very far, and then they like kind of let it subside. And it was like you know, it was a, you know, a tit for tat, low level attacks but it wasn't it wasn't conflict the way we know it uh and then kind of wait for the moment when they feel like the 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 correlation of forces if i can use an old communist term is in their favor to renew things um i i, I must admit as a diplomat uh, is this something by the way dave thank you very much um the the military i, I deal with often refers to the failure of military as if it was a uh, binary solution it's either on or it's off the military you know the the military the diplomatic diplomats are always working even if there's war going on uh so the diplomacy side of it's going it but having said that the secretary general of the united nations just went to moscow he came back with his tail between his legs he is now uh complaining about the failure of the u.n security council you know to influence this one guess what russia's got a veto on it it's you know it's a a founding member so diplomacy right now is failing because the russians aren't yet ready to settle down and stop shooting. 
Thanks, Ambassador. I think you're right. I think we're actually looking at something that, in a sense, is reminiscent of what we saw in Bosnia, where the combatants were so tired at some point, they were hoping somebody could give them a reason to stop. That may, with these two, lie somewhere in the future. I believe there are negotiating sessions that are in progress right now, but uh, they're being kept a secret. And uh, that's an interesting thing because so much is blown these days, like how much intelligence support we're providing to what side and that sort of thing. I'm reminded of a nursery rhyme, and it goes like this, reminiscent also of Bullwinkle's corner, but uh, hickory dickory dock. Two mice ran up the clock. The clock struck one and the other got away. And that will be the end to this war. When the clock runs out, one's going to get away and and have a better future while the other one probably doesn't. Next thing we're going to do is talk about our aspects of what may we see happening in the coming weeks. Uh, What do you think about where we are next week, week after? Over to you, Ambassador. We've just announced, we being Washington, have just announced a you know, a proposal for a $33 billion uh, economic, humanitarian, military assistance package uh, to support Ukraine. Um, this clearly comes out of the, the meetings that uh, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin just had in Kiev, uh, and then the follow-on meetings that Secretary Austin had in, uh, in Rafsan Air Force Base in Germany. Uh, here's a, you know, here's an interesting question right now. And and I know we don't do politics, but, but there is a political calendar, uh, which is obvious to, uh, the adversary in this case, you know, Moscow, everybody else, uh, November elections and who controls the, the house, uh, and the Senate. And here's the question is, is the American public, you know, prepared to, deal with inflation, you know, $4, you know, a uh, 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 gallon for, for gas at the, at, at the, at the pump. Uh, they're prepared for the fact that we just had a, you know, a, a, a dip in the U S GDP in the last quarter. Uh, what, what sacrifice is the American public prepared to invest to protect a country that the average American can't find on a map and doesn't much care about. So that's, that's a big challenge. For Europe, this this is this is now a, a a front a front channel question or a front row question because they're experiencing it. They know where their natural gas comes from. They know where their petroleum comes from. Comes from Russia. They've got five, maybe six million uh, Ukrainians have 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 now moved into European Union spaces and are t- and are now you know requiring assistance and, and taking up a lot of essential services. So. You know, and then you have the whole weed problem. And one of my favorite towns in Ukraine is called Zhitomir, which I would roughly translate that as wheat uh, world. I mean, that's literally what it translates to. So, you know, like like a massive chunk of the world's wheat grain uh, production comes from this part of the world. Uh, so, and then, you know, what happens to, you know, Africa, you know, and, and other places. So there's a, there's a lot of moving parts there. And the question is, can NATO, can the European Union sustain its support for Ukraine, which is, you know, looks like the definition of a yacht, which is a hole in the water that you pour water into, that you pour money into. Um, and, and that's going to be a public diplomacy, a, 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 a battle of the narrative. And this is where I think Dave Johnson and his world uh, comes into play is, is the disinformation that is out there. Uh, which right now I would have to say the Russians are, are, are again dominating the narrative in terms of why. I mean, let's, let's take a there's a, a, a relatively well, a very well known American senator who basically says, hey, Russia is just trying to regain territory lost, um, which is in, in, in one sense is true on the surface. But does that justify killing you know, a couple of million people and displacing a third of, the, of, of a population of a country with 40 million people. So there's a narrative there right now where, you know, can Moscow sustain it? Can we, uh, we did it in the Cold War. Uh, can we, can we sustain that again? Uh, and do we have the wherewithal in the current world where everything is fought out on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook? Thanks, Ambassador. Dave, over to you. There are a couple of things we're in danger of before I answer Larry's question. And the primary one that all analysts seem to fall into, especially those that aren't professionally trained, is that uh, we tend to culturally mirror. And we talk about 
Putin is a madman or, or war crimes. Uh, and we, there's a lot of the kind of uh, hyperbole that's thrown around on, uh, the, in the info war, so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, when you look at things critically and you recognize that there are challenges involved in all of this, and I think Larry really hit a point here about the American people and you know, being hauled into this particular fight in lots of different ways, uh, certainly uh, the Ukrainians are, are, are fighting for uh, their freedom, and they need external support in order to be able to survive this particular onslaught. But at the same time, having been in lots of foreign engagements before, one of the bigger challenges when you give people guns is how are you accounting for them? Where are they going? Uh, who, who, we've, uh, we've set aside lots of money to give to the Zelensky government, uh, but we do know that uh, nobody, including President Zelensky, is free of corruption charges. So we have to deal with the fact that this is a developing country that's building its democracy, that has a lot of gaps in its, in its uh, uh, growth that are still going out there, and we're going to hurl money into this yacht, as, as, as Larry put it. On top of that, we assume the motivations of, of, of Russia or, or China based on how we would logically think about these things. I think we'd be very surprised if we heard a Chinese narrative, honestly, talking about uh, about the same things, or, or a Russian narrative, um, the, 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 their version of truth, their, their, their facts would be different from ours in many ways. Uh, and I do think that, you know, there's something about Russia that's very unique. And there was a g good book written by someone that the senator was familiar with named uh, Vladimir Lefebvre called The Algebra of Conscience. And he compared uh, during the Cold War, a Russian value of, of conscience versus the U.S. value of conscience. And if you look at it in terms of turning the other cheek is a noble thing, to a Russian that's being a fool. Uh, and they, he even brought it down to when Americans smile, it means that we are confident that we're in charge, that we understand what's going on. But when Russians smile, it means that they're vulnerable and want mercy. So you end up in two different people, both smiling at each other and thinking, hey, they've got more missiles than I thought they had. Hey, they have fewer missiles than I thought they had because people literally don't see the same facts the same way. So, uh, you know, I thought Larry's comment about we, we wonder what kind of timeline uh, President Putin has in his, in, in, you know, in his uh, head. Well, that's really hard to do unless you're, unless you're trying to think like a Russian. I, I'm not quite that good. All I can say is as an American with a strategy background, uh, I look at it and I'd say, okay, well, what's his internal political uh, challenge. Uh, Larry hit it on the head with the, the May Day. But at the same time, he's brought nationalism back, which in a, in a, in a big way, into the, the Russian con consciousness. And the attacks on Russians uh, around the world in various ways have forced people who might not have been nationalists before to say, oh, well, you're gonna, if you're going to hate me for being Russian, I'll hate you right back. You know, so we have to be very careful about demonizing uh, you know, the Russian people. Now, of course, Ukrainians don't have a problem demonizing the Russian people. They're naming their kids Javelin. So this is not going to go away anytime, anytime soon. Um, in terms of the info war, um, I, I generally think that the Ukrainian effort has been stronger in many, many ways. The Russians still have a way, have a means to get their message out there. It would be very interesting to me if we started looking at this and recognizing John Archilis, uh, you know, small, few, spread, our mini spread out fast uh, versus big and slow approach and recognize that maybe cyber warfare has a really big space that could be generated in this, much like the resistance in World War II. Instead of dropping crystal radios behind, you know, enemy lines, you're finding ways to bring the internet or the, the capability, the physical capabilities for an info war to occur behind enemy lines, so to speak. Uh, and, and, and you're empowering your soldiers or you're creating a cyber militia where every American has, uh, uh, you know, their computer on their, over their mantelpiece instead of the brown best. And, uh, they then hook that together, you know, uh, SETI like to, to create a supercomputer that can fight the enemy, so to speak. I mean, there's all kinds of wonderful opportunities out there in the info space. Uh, and I do think that the Ukrainians are holding their own. I really do. Thanks, Dave. That's great. Uh, both your answers were really wonderful. I would like to move into then what I call the lightning round after a commercial. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
You can have vegetables, lots of them, on your table next winter. You can have your own fresh vegetables on your table this summer if you have your own Victory Garden. Yes, there's no restriction on home canning and home processing of vegetables and garden fruits and berries. Plan your Victory Garden now. Get your garden plot lined up. Get the advice of a garden expert if you need it. And be prepared to grow your own for victory. Join a garden club or a community garden movement or share a garden with your neighbor. You can help win the battle of food production. You can help our fighting men get the food they need. You can help save the vital metals used in commercial canning if you grow your own victory garden in 1943. For further information, write to Victory Gardens, Washington, D.C. Victory Gardens, Washington, D.C. If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. A ranger never takes the easy way out. You're reaching deep inside you for things you've never known. Go! That's why getting into the rangers is tough and the training is tough. So it makes me feel like I'm part of something really special. Be all that you can be. And I'm not the only one. You can do it in the Army. Attention, America and GTS Carrier needs you. There's a national shortage of truck drivers, and therefore freight is not being moved fast enough to meet the needs of our economy as well as our supply needs. In Burr Ridge, Illinois, on Friday, May 20th, between 1 and 6 p.m. Central, GTS Carrier is having a job fair. We are looking to hire truck drivers, mechanics, and dispatchers. GTS Carrier hires the best of the best. When you see our logo, you can rest assured the driver is a part of a team of elite drivers who is working to keep and maintain our country and economy. Come to our job fair and find out more about us. Even if you're a spectator, come and visit us. Visit our website at gtscarrier.com or driveforddrivers.com. Once again, gtscarrier.com or driveforddrivers.com. America and GTS need you. We're back, and here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is our 25th program on the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 
10th program in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by Ambassador Lawrence Butler and David Johnson. We're now going to do something a little different. We have questions that came in from the audience. I'm going to pose these to our members and kind of like in Final Jeopardy, because it's not just something that flashes up. It's kind of an essay question. And so well, without further ado, let's take a look at it. Putin appears to be driven by ego and emotion versus logic. Agree or disagree? Please elaborate. Disagree. So to elaborate, everybody has a form of logic in their head. You know, ego and emotion is something that is usually a knee-jerk reaction, some quick, some some short-term decision. Uh, that's that things that happen are there. Now, whether he's driven by ego, most politicians have a narcissistic bent to them, right? They they want to be on TV. They like being the leader. That's the kind of thing. But in terms of emotion and and how we understand his logic. That can be very very different. I mentioned Vlad Lefebvre before, the idea that, hey, you know, showing strength is, that, that, that showing mercy is weakness and showing strength is what matters. Fear and those kinds of things matter. And, you know, and he's communicating with the populations of Eastern Europe in a way to try and demand the influence of Russia, which is their geopolitical right as he sees it. So his logic, and you can hear his logic as he says what he's doing to his own people. His logic is just different from ours, but there is there is logic to it. We just have to understand it. Thanks, Dave. That was a brilliant bolt of lightning. So then, Ambassador, the next question belongs to you. Do you agree that the PRC looks at Putin as unstable? And if so, or if not, how will they manage him moving forward? I'm going to go back to what Dave just said: is you know what appears to be you know kind of insanity or incoherence from our perspective until you understand where he comes from. You can't understand that there is a logic. Uh, there's a method to his lo- to to his madness, as it were. Uh, I think PRC right now, one uh, they always get credit, which I think they don't really deserve for the long game. You know, Henry Kissinger's you know alleged question to his counterpart at the Paris peace talks of how's this going to turn out and. Or how does the French Revolution going to turn out? And his counterpart said, well, it's too early to tell, you know, 200 years later was, was actually a misquote. But in this case, I think the, the Chinese are watching uh, Putin make mistakes. And what is the old adage in the military of never interrupt your adversary? Or in this case, for the Chinese, their, their future adversary when he's making a mistake. So right now, the Chinese are taking notes about all the mistakes the, the Russians are making. Uh, big smiles on their faces as the population of Russia continues to shrink uh, and it continues to depend on you know, one source of income, hydrocarbons. Great. Thanks. So, Dave, this next one then would be for you. Does the war end only with the death of either Putin or Zelensky? And if neither, what is it that defines done? So, again, I, I, I broached this earlier on. I don't think there is a done because time is not finite and you know, if they lose this particular campaign, they'll be back at it again because of for geopolitical reasons. But I do think that in terms of this current fight, this period that they're in right now, this campaign that's going on, that it's going to be about uh, people being worn down. It's not going to be about whether Putin or Zelensky dies. Their countries are now on, on a path where there is a there is a succession to both of those men, and any Russian leader is going to have a hard time letting go of this fight. And that's what I was trying to say earlier is, you know, we, we keep demonizing Putin and thinking it's all him. But, you know, the uh, the French version of uh, L'Analyse Geopolitique by Chopard talks about the geo-economy of resources, the geography of the country, and the identity of its people drive whatever leaders in charge to, do, to make the same kind of decisions. That's why often we elect politicians, and then when they get in office, they have similar policies to their predecessor, because the big things haven't changed. And, and that's why I don't think the death or not death of Putin or Zelensky matters one whit in this fight. I think the fight ends, so to speak, when they get worn out and have a truce. Well, Ambassador Butler, now here again from our audience is a question that I think you'd be expert at answering since you're married to half of the question. What are the implications of Finland and Sweden joining NATO? This has got to be my favorite question because I've spent literally nine years of my life living in Finland. As you've indicated, I'm married to somebody who grew up in Finland, but is not a Finn. So I have a little bit of a perspective on this one. I used to argue with the Finns when I was working at US European Command as a senior leader there, that Finland was more valuable to NATO as a non 
NATO partner than as a member of NATO, because as a neutral country, they could go to places and not have the baggage that NATO carried with it. So I'm thinking of peacekeeping missions like in Lebanon and other places. The reality is Finland buried a million Russians to maintain its independence between 1939 and 1944 or 1945, when eventually had to sue for peace and the Russians let them go. And Sweden, which hasn't fought a war since, I have to go back to the Napoleonic Wars when Russia took Finland from Sweden, was the last time that any Swede fired a rifle in anger against an enemy. This is a remarkable development that Russia will be sorry ever caused to have happen, because now its northern flank is now officially NATO. And that was always kind of unofficially NATO. You know, it was never a threat. They didn't have to defend it. They didn't have to worry about it because the Finns were never going to allow NATO to use its territory. It's it's 1,600 kilometer long land border uh, for, for NATO, for espionage or aggression or stuff like that. It, the dynamic has just changed, which is going to cause unintended consequences for both NATO and for Russia because of its bastion. Its nuclear submarine force sits up in the Kola Peninsula in Murmansk up there. The complications to the triple squared route that you can imagine for them trying to think about crap. Now there's now there's a NATO uh, foe on our northern flank. Um, but having said that, uh, I think both Finland and Sweden have finally seen the light that Russia is never going to be a friend, never going to be neutral, never not going to be a threat, and that they are better off throwing their lot in with NATO. Thanks, Ambassador. As always, both your answers to these questions were brilliant, very short, very precise, and kept us right on time. So I do have just one bit uh, of this final Jeopardy. Now, this is for 25,000 Confederate rubles. What is the name of the American anti-tank weapon? Are we talking about javelins? Eh. No, Carl Gustav. What I mean is he was talking about the Finns working for those evil Swedes. But if you go back far enough, both of them gave us the Varangians who became the Kievan Rus, if you go back to the root. So here we are. And and one of our panelists, Dean Chang, on the first program in this series mentioned that, that it, it is thought by many that Putin is actually working to try to grab the lands that were filled with the original Kievan Rus and get them back into something before he dies. Now, there are those who think he's very ill. Of course, everybody has their own time limit. Well, thank you very much. So I would just like then to ask each of you for a closing comment, if you wouldn't mind. And Ambassador, that would be you first. This is going to be a long conflict. Uh, there's going to be a real challenge and stress on the economic systems in Europe and the United States. Do we have the intestinal fortitude to stay the course? And this is something my experience of 10 years of my life in the Balkans, working with um, various Slavic cultures, is there's a perception in the East that we in the West do not have the backbone and the stamina to stand up to aggression. We've proven them wrong over and over again. We need to prove them wrong one more time. Thank you, Ambassador. Dave, over to you. I I think we should look at the great wheel of time, so to speak, and recognize that we're always in a period of legitimate or illegitimate competition. And then from there, we might slip into some forms of irregular warfare, then into conventional warfare, then into irregular warfare, and back into competition, some of it illicit and illegitimate uh, or malign. But there is never going to be an end to conflict. So when we try to define these things, we have to recognize that we should be looking at the long term. Not just is there going to be a truce here in this conflict, because the the conflict will go on afterwards. There will be many, many centuries more of conflict on this planet. And the question becomes, how is that conflict going to be driven? How are we going to defang that conflict in the past? If we look at Russia, and, we, and, and there have been people looking at Russia saying, you know, this is a criminal network, as it were, with nuclear weapons. If that's the case, then you can make a better stab at maintaining that longer period of competition, hopefully legitimate, but usually with illegitimate and malign competition embedded within it. And you want to lengthen that period of competition and keep it out of, you know, irregular warfare and, hot, and, and uh, anything with warfare in the name. You know, so if that's the case, then what are we doing now with our aid to the Ukraine, with our setting up of these diplomatic agreements with various states, which are just the terrain across which these networks flow? What are we doing to harden the transportation, communications and finance systems and make it so that 
illegitimate, malign, or corrupt influence doesn't exist in the long run. This is a wonderful opportunity to build those international mechanisms of information sharing for and 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 understand the rules and values that will be that will enable a world where open pluralistic societies can be secure and prosperous, not autocratic ones. This is a great example of an autocratic society failing, and 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 I think that we're we're hopeful, and that's why we have to support the Ukraine in this case, is because if we can hold back or or cause to fail in their objectives, an autocratic society, then we can once again get a chance to defang it during those periods of competition where the level of, of conflict is less. But I hate to say it, world, but you're never safe. Uh, and so I, you know, I don't want to uh, sit here and talk about uh, winning. Winning is kind of my, uh, my snowflake word, you know, my safe word, man. It, it, just, it just drives me nuts. Thank you, Dave. And I would just like to say in conclusion then in this round, uh, if Ukraine does gain a measure of autonomy from this fight, it isn't necessarily an aspect of modern democracy that they'll achieve. They are working toward that, but they have a number of things that they do even now that are very troubling. Hopefully they can. And in fact, all of the interaction with these new partners in such a direct way may have quite an effect on them. But the way they've handled money in the past is they've taken large amounts of money, used some of it, but then paid off their billionaires and then funneled it back to some of their benefactors. That can't be good if it continues. By the same token, many elements in the world have now bartered a whole lot of their armaments in support of Ukraine. How much of that actually gets shot and used? How much is captured? How much is then gathered up and sold off later on by people who wish to make money? These are the things that cause me to lose a little sleep. At the same time, as we've said, there's no way that this really ends because at the end of anything that happens, there's always Russia on one side and Ukraine on the other, and Russia can come again with its 140 million people and giant landmass against Ukraine with about 40 million people. The one thing that though is true is that Ukraine, if it does make some changes, can become a professional military state, perhaps on the order of something as someone has said in a past program like Israel, as Brian Downing, in fact, that said that, and develop a hardness to it as far as military aspects, but also then work on its diplomacy, its information, so that it actually becomes a, a holistic state of a, perhaps a different type. And that's how it stands off Russia. It seems to me also that one of the implications for Finland and uh, Sweden joining NATO, in addition to Ukraine itself becoming harder, is that Mr. Putin at one point had a border with NATO of a certain size, but he had a Ukraine, which was fairly malleable. Now he's caused Ukraine to become increasingly hardened to the point where generations of people will hate Russia once again even those who may be descended from Russians who live in Ukraine. And he's probably doubled, if not more, the border with hostile states. Ambassador, you're more familiar than I am. What do you think he's done as far as increasing the border with hostile states? Has he doubled it or tripled it? He has probably doubled it. Finland has always had this careful relationship with Russia. They never wanted to do anything to offend it or threaten it. And Congratulations, Putin. You just added 1,600 kilometers of, having said that, most of it's both undefensible because it's forest and swamp until it freezes over in the wintertime. But well done. The Finns were prepared to stay on the sidelines, not be a problem. Now they're a problem. Well, that's been a great program. Thanks to our guests, Ambassador Lawrence Butler and Lieutenant Colonel Retired Dave Johnson. We really appreciate the fact that people with their experience and expertise uh, can assist us in this effort. And we have a number of really great guests, and we'll be back with more next week. I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to this podcast. We are on 12 platforms now, including Amazon, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and others, including our own RSS feed. Also want to mention the fact that we have a number of ideas that we're working on for future programs. We are part of two programs, our Veterans Radio Hour, part of the Veterans Broadcast Network. And also, we have another show called Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggan, a retired combat attack aviator who was injured in a very difficult crash in Iraq, lost his leg, but came back stronger than ever as an endurance athlete, an endurance hunter, an inspiring figure. He's made heroic efforts in recovering himself, but also he's got a great audience and a great program. So I'd like you to, to invite you to hear that program on Monday nights. It's important also to remember that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own. In other words, we and our guests do not represent any official views, thoughts, or others of anything but Veterans Radio on our part, 
and for them themselves. We are not representing the U.S. government. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. We do not use any classified or official sources at all, only open sources, and no politics are discussed. In other words, partisan politics. We'll be back again next week with more guests to describe the war about the same way, but we'll cover what we think is happening and what will happen in the future. We look to have General Grange back with us in the coming weeks. He's very busy right now with a number of concerns, including what he does on the outside, and uh, we wish him and his family the best. Thank you for joining us. This is Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. No one left behind. <laughs>